Are you ready for the end of the world? You are listening to Your Community Spirit, the show about caring, sharing, and preparing for the changes needed in the world as we know it. Let's bring back the circle again. Did I forget to wake up? Wake up! For once I'm awake. Maybe that's why. Wake up! To the peace and joy of Mother Earth. You are listening to Your Community Spirit. This is Ord Energy Mon. And this is Tree Song. And we are live and local and sometimes in your face <laughs> here on Your Community Radio. Well, Your Community Spirit on Your Community Radio. Yes. Live and local and loco. Um, speak for yourself. <laughs> it's like if I knew I was crazy, I wouldn't. Ha- if you know you're crazy, doesn't that make you sane? <laughs> a little bit. There's a saying like that, you know, like if you're questioning your sanity, you're probably sane. <laughs> it's just like so. Um, 97 out of 100 climate scientists agree humans are responsible for global warming. 
So And the other three are paid by the industry. <laughs> just like <laughs> Or, you know, I don't know. Or, you know, there there's some complexities of climate. They might disagree on a particular point. But yeah, ninety seven percent in the most recent analysis. Now the earth does revolve around the sun, but also we're doing burning this stuff called fossil fuels. Yeah. So um those are both two uncontroversial statements from a scientific perspective. There you go. So um now, can you guess which of these two long-established facts just received an additional jolt of uh, publicity? It was, of course, the latter. Um, the oil industry has, of course, no economic interest in admitting to debuck the former, and so you will no longer be persecuted for claiming that the Earth revolves around the sun. Because <laughs> there was a time that that was... Um, Debunked. I mean, not debunked, but yeah, debated. Debated, yeah. And uh, or people were burned, burned by. You know, I mean, people were publicly escaped. Es <clears throat> Galileo got grounded. You know, he had to. He got in trouble for that. So, an international team of scientists analyzed the abstracts of eleven thousand nine hundred and forty-four peer-reviewed papers published between nineteen ninety-one and two thousand eleven dealing with climate change and global warming. That's right. We're talking about 20 years of paper, many published long before Superstorm Sandy or last year's epic Greenland melt or Australians' angry summer. About two-thirds of those authors refrained from stating in their abstract whether human activity was responsible for climate change. But in those papers where a position on the claim was staked out, 97.1% endorsed the consensus position that we humans are indeed cooking the planet now i get into it for people talking about saving the planet <laughs> we're cooking the planet yeah it seems like there's a disconnect between us and the planet we're cooking ourselves <laughs> yeah we happen to be on this planet you so. know it's just like don't disconnect yourself global warming is affecting us I mean, um, there makes no sense to go from two foot of snow to 108 degrees in two weeks. Yeah. And I had a friend who had that happen. Well, that happened uh, oh, this didn't, spring. Didn't make it here into the news, I don't think. But uh, there's some place in the U.S. where it went from below freezing to uh, 90 degrees in a day. Yeah. So I mean, it's pretty extreme weather. I mean, uh, the weather patterns are still the same weather patterns. They're just now more extreme. Yeah. But we as humans thrive on the extreme, man. <laughs> yeah. We're going to survive the extreme. Extreme weather. It's just the like, new extreme sport. It's just, um, and fortunately, you don't have a choice of whether you want to play it. Yeah. Well, oh, wait a second. Do we have a choice? <laughs> well, not at the moment. We've got a choice about whether we play it in the future. Ah. We can't take back what people in the past did to bring us to this point, but we could say, hey, do we still want to admit millions of megatons of... Did you say admit or emit? Emit. Admit. We want to admit that we are emitting. <laughs> yeah. But uh, here's one of the consequences of this high-stakes extreme weather game we're playing. Climate-related disasters cost American taxpayers $96 billion last year. That's us. It cost us money. Wait, unless you don't pay taxes. <clears throat> yeah. It's like, um, yeah. It cost us money. We, the people, are paying for what we, the people, are screwing up. Yeah. 
<coughs> we are Excuse becoming me. responsible whether we want to or not. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and this new analysis said that it was uh, federal government dished out $96 billion last year on what the National Resource Defense Council calls federal climate disruption costs. That's $1,100 per taxpayer. I don't. I can't afford that. Yeah, that's pretty pricey. I'd like it if I could just have that money back. You know, that'd be nice. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I mean, I wonder if if you did certain things will, and you, you know, if you can prove that you did not pollute at all, will the government give you the $1,100? <laughs> yeah. You know, well, maybe we could distribute the costs in a stacked way according to your uh, carbon footprint. There you go. <laughs> if like, you got a big carbon footprint, you got to pay more of the tax. <laughs> there you go. It's like, I, and, but that's eleven hundred dollars average. Yeah, average. That's a lot of money. Wait, ninety-six billion dollars of money. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, it adds up. Ninety-six billion here, ninety-six billion there. I mean, it's only one sixth of the government's non-defense-related spending. Hey, yeah, come on, it's only one sixth. Well, at this point, you know, I mean, it's considered non-defense, but at this point, it's becoming a national security issue. And there have been several reports talking about how climate change is affecting national security. And this is more money than the feds spent on either transportation or education. Maybe if we spent $96 billion on education. <laughs> yeah, education on climate change. <laughs> Just like, so, yeah, I mean, last year the unwelcome spending spree came during the second most expensive year on record for such disasters. Superstorm Sandy hit last year, as did the d drought-induced failures of federally insured crops. And, of course, there was the floods and forest fires that racked up some sizable debts themselves. Yeah. So nature is calling in her cards. <laughs> the loan is being recalled. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's see what we have in other news. Hedy Colorado farmers are plowing ahead with hemp farming. What do you do when the federal government won't let you plant a sustainable, super useful crop on your own land? Well, if you're Ryan Laughlin, you do it anyway. As of this week, Laughlin planted America's first real crop of industrial hemp in more than half a century. So it's not the first. It's more. The, it's the first in more than half a century. Yeah. Because if you've seen the um, USDA uh, video, Hemp, Hemp for Victory, yeah. during World War II... The government actively asked farmers to grow hemp for the war effort. Yeah. For rope, for canvas, for parachutes. Um, they had a nice catchy little tune too. Hemp for our country, hemp for war, hemp for victory, hemp, hemp for victory. <laughs> yeah. Apparently their attitudes changed at some point though. And for the past 40 years, there has not been a uh, major hemp crop. But now this 40-year-old farmer from Springfield, Colorado, has been scheming to put it in for months. Uh, here's this quote. I believe this is really going to revitalize and strengthen farm communities, Laughlin told the Denver Post in April. Now he's leased 60 acres of his father's alfalfa farm to plant and tend the hundreds of hemp studies he's already been grooming. And it's hemp is a variety of cannabis that, sorry kids, won't get you high. No. Nope. Nope, it's not I've gonna do it. I've actually seen someone who smoked some, and they were sick for like three days. <laughs> yeah, it just it was like you a sick. teenage kid <clears throat> in um, Kansas, and yeah, he did not look good. Yeah, so. but uh, it's it is a strong, nutritious, and super sustainable to grow. It is used for everything from rope to cereal. 
requires few herbicides and even has been called carbon negative by some boosters. While it's illegal to grow in the U.S., it's not illegal to sell. Right now, imported hemp, the only legal kind, counts for about $500 million in annual U.S. sales, according to the Hemp Industries Association. So what if it were homegrown, Laughlin style? Now, I know there are a lot of farmers in southern Illinois. You know, there's a lot of farmland here. How would it affect the southern Illinois economy if we started growing hemp here? Now, in Colorado, Colorado actually legalized hemp along with medical marijuana last November. Now, last week, Colorado passed a bill that would register <coughs> hemp farmers with the state and create a committee that would work with farmers in the Department of Agriculture to hopefully keep plants in the fields and farmers out of jail. Yeah. Now, that's see, the issue here is states' rights versus federal law. Yeah. So the state has made it essentially legal to grow, but it's still a federal crime. Yeah, so now there's going to be this struggle where, you know, like, according to uh, federal law, they could just come today and say, oh, we saw this article in Grist, we're going to just come arrest this guy. But then it becomes a struggle between state and federal because the state does not want the federal to do that. And they will, they will try to penalize each other if they take actions that each other don't like. Now, locally recently, Kentucky passed the measure to legalize industrial hemp production over the objections of local law enforcement who said it would turn the state's residents into a bunch of stoners. Apparently, the cops aren't <laughs> educated enough yeah. to know that. I thought they, didn't they go through the D.A.R.E. program? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe they weren't paying attention during the D.A.R.E. program. So um, I think that probably the issue is, um, well, they don't even look alike. I mean, the pictures I've seen, like marijuana is like this bushy, leafy plant, and hemp is like this really tall, skinny, essentially stem with a little leaf on the top. Yeah, because for the industrial hemp, they're growing it for the fiber, and for the other one, they're growing it for the psychoactive properties. So they do look like different varieties. They look different. They also, the, uh, it, it. Basically, it's not, you can't confuse the two. <laughs> now, in um, Kentucky, um, the Kentucky farmers there aren't going ahead with growing it yet. Nobody has, actually. And then instead are lobbying the feds to make this stuff legal. And so far, though the feds, um, the Industrial Hemp Farming Act of 2013, first introduced in Congress in February, is currently... Chilling on a couch in committee. Uh, chilling on a couch, eating, eating munchies. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> there's no vote in sight on it. So um, the law is clear on it. And um, the, you know, the federal law is clear. Yeah. But the states are trying to push the issue, I guess. Right? Yeah. That's why I wanted to mention this story and why we'll be sure to follow this story is I want to see if the federal government will do enforcement on this because they've there's been a contest in like california for example they occasionally raid uh the medicinal marijuana facilities but they sometimes don't and what's it going to be like with farmer if if they realize that the farmer really is just growing industrial hemp are they going to let him do that or are they going to rush in there and destroy this valuable crop just because they don't like it well and how I mean, is that it's not because they don't like it it's <laughs> illegal it's illegal yeah it's I mean, illegal, and I've also heard there's a funding aspect, too, that, you know, they get rewarded with funding when they capture and destroy illegal uh, drugs, you know. Well, I mean, I'm sure that they, you won't get any funding if you're not proving that your the money is getting used. Yeah, so they submit their report saying, oh, you know, we destroyed uh, 
60,000 uh, heads of hemp this year, so we deserve more funding. Right. So, I mean, it is a felony um, on the federal level. Yeah. So, I mean, for this guy to move forward, he, it's not like he doesn't have the backing of the state. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he's not going to go to jail yeah. if, they, if the feds decide to enforce it. Yeah, if they decide to enforce at any moment, he could just be arrested and his whole crop taken. Right. But then they also, I'm sure... You know, at least the people at the head of the departments are, know the political ramifications. It's going to look really bad for the DEA if they come and take a farmer who's just trying to earn his livelihood and arrest him and burn his crops. That's going to look really bad. I mean, the reason why Kentucky did it is <laughs> Kentucky It used to be a very, very large crop in yeah. World War II. And they are very economically depressed. So the, this is, I mean, so far the imported market is $500 million, yeah. and it's just no end in sight. So as far as an economically depressed farmer, this is a phenomenal chance to grow something that is needed. Yeah, and they could price-wise undercut all of the imported stuff because they don't have to deal with import and transportation. If it were raised domestically, you know, you could buy from within your own state, within your own region. And so um, this farmer said... Even though he might actually land in jail, quote, he told Denver's westward, it's my crazy competitive nature. <laughs> so, you know, he wants to get out there and get a, a chunk of this huge market. Yeah. So the chance to get into the hemp market. All right. Back to climate. America's first climate refugees. If you don't count... Um, her, um, you know, Superstorm Sandy, yes. if you don't count Sandy, Katrina. Katrina. It's hard to say when it starts because it's like with the storms. It's hard to say exactly if the storm was caused, caused by climate change. It's hard to be sure exactly who the first climate refugees are, but these are some of the first official ones. Sabrina Warner keeps having the same nightmare, a huge wave rearing up out of the water and crashing over her house, forcing her to swim for her life with her toddler son. Quote, I dream about the water coming in, she says. The landscape in winter on the Bering Sea coast seems peaceful. The tidal wave of Warner's nightmare trapped by snow and several feet of ice. But the calm is deceptive. Spring breakup will soon restore the river to its full violent force. In the dream, Warner climbs up on the roof of her small house. As the waters rise, she swims for higher ground, the village school which sits on... 20-foot pillars. Even that isn't high enough. By the time Warner wakes, she is clinging to the roof of the school, desperate to be saved. Now, Warner's vision is not far from the reality written by climate change. The people of Nutuk, on the west coast of Alaska, and about 400 miles south of the Bering Strait that separates the state from Russia, are living a slow-motion disaster that will end very possibly within the next five years, with the entire village being washed away. Now, it's not a label or a future embraced by people um, living there that is being America's first climate change refugees. The Euptic Eskimo have been fishing and hunting by the shores of the Bering Sea for centuries, and the villagers reject the notion that they will now be forced to run in chaos from the, their ancestral lands. But exile is undeniable. A report by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers predicted that the highest point in the village, 
the school of Warner's nightmare would be underwater by 2017. And there is no possible way to protect the village in place, the report concluded. If Nutuk cannot move its people to the new site in time, the village will disappear. This community of 350 people will cease to exist. And that's the end of that. Yeah. I could keep... I don't have anything to say about that. Yeah, that's one of those ones that's just not funny. You know, we can't really crack any jokes about that one. Yeah. It's a community of people that have lived there for centuries, and now they're moving because of climate change. Yeah. So. It, it's a reminder, though. It's a sobering reminder to uh, to realize the importance of learning about climate change and doing what we can to respond to it. And learning how we can make the world better. How can we make the world better? <laughs> there are a lot of ways. Now, this one sounds interesting. This app helps you to avoid supporting Monsanto and other terrible companies. A very unbiased headline there. <laughs> when shopping in any store that carries national brands, it's virtually impossible to remember which ones you're not supporting to buy for which reasons. Yeah, all of these major corporations, all the things they do, it's hard to keep it all straight. But this, this one uses palm oil, or was it that one? This brand is all natural, but it sprays chemicals around the world. It's hard to keep it all straight. Uh, you can either hold out for Sunday's farmer market, or Saturday as it is here in Carbondale, <laughs> and not eat it in the meantime, or just go ahead and buy the cornmeal from a brand that's probably in bed from Monsanto. But now a programmer named Ivan Pardo is putting an end to this misery. You can scan a product with his app, Bycots, and it analyzes the insane web of corporate ownership in order to tell you exactly what terrible policies you'd be supporting if you bought that cereal. <laughs> if we started doing that, we probably wouldn't buy anything. Yeah, you might just only shop at the farmer's market then. <laughs> it's like, so it's called Bycott instead of Boycott. Yeah, instead it's, of Boycott, it's Bycott. Yeah. Yeah, and I haven't, I haven't gotten the app yet. I would like to see this app eventually, but I saw a little image from it. It shows a little web of what corporations are connected to your food. There you go. I mean, um, isn't that the whole point of... You know, knowing, I mean, we have become so disconnected where the food comes from that, yeah. you know, some of us don't even know anymore that milk comes from a cow, but, you know, it comes from the store. So this is like completely and totally reconnecting to where the food comes from. Yeah. So it's good to, you know, follow the line. You don't want to see where some of the stuff has been. <laughs> yeah. You may get a rude awakening, but the information is key. Do we have any more stories about information? Vermont House passes a GMO labeling law. Now, GMO stands for genetically modified organisms, and that's a nice way of saying, let's mess with you. <laughs> Members of the, the Vermont House think shoppers should be told which products contain GMOs. Would you like to know what's in your food? A historic but cautious attempt to force food manufacturers to label products containing genetic modified ingredients passed the Vermont House by an overwhelming 107 to 37 vote last week. Now, if approved by the state Senate and signed by the governor, the bill, H-112, would make Vermont the first state in the nation to require labeling of genetically modified foods. But the measure likely wouldn't go into effect for two years, and it would not affect meat, milk, or eggs, from animals that were fed or treated with genetically engineered substances, including GMO corn and RBGH cattle hormone. Mm -hmm. Now, 
isn't most countries in Europe require labeling already? I know some do. I know I don't know how many it is exactly, but there's countries, and there's been one or two countries that have banned GMOs oh, yeah. entirely. Some of too. them completely banned. I know that. I know, um, but so this is just one state who is talking about it. Yeah. See, I believe in sharing information. You know, like they they say they make this claim of oh, people will superstitiously not use it. Well, well, give them the information. Let them decide for themselves. If you think your product is safe, make an argument to them for why it's safe, but let them know what they're buying. Yeah, I mean... Informed consent. <laughs> I wonder how many people are not allergic to soy, but are allergic to the GMO soy. Yeah. You know, how many people are not allergic to dairy products, but are allergic to GMO or the the hormone that's in it? Yeah. You know, because allergies are a big deal nowadays. Food they allergies. are. And I just, I wonder... Um, cause I found that out myself that, um, I can eat certain meats, but only if it's like natural, mm-hmm. like I have, I have, I could not go to any fast food place and eat a burger without just getting violently sick. Yeah. And I don't think it's the meat itself. I have, I think I've reached the point now that I can digest meat. I don't think it's the meat itself. I think it's all the other junk in it yeah. that makes me sick. They do a lot of processing because, you know, to turn it into ground beef, especially the industrial stuff, you know, it's just they do strange things too. And the issue isn't mm-hmm. like let's follow the track because when they're having um, foodborne illnesses, it's really hard to follow the track back to the original cow because yeah. it's not one cow. It could be 100 or 125 cows all ground up together. And it's like, which one was the one that had the disease or, you know, the bacteria? Yeah. Or, you know, it's it's basically manure. That's what makes most people sick with foodborne illnesses. Yeah. Let alone actual stuff we put in it. So. Wow. Today is already Friday the 17th of May. Yep. Today is the anniversary of the first U.S. same-sex marriage. Sounds so, good. That's yeah. a good thing to celebrate. So, a, a year from now, will, I, will we be celebrating the first planted hemp anniversary? I don't know. <laughs> we might. And the first harvest we'll be celebrating soon, too. <laughs> All right, coming up on Saturday, it's International Museum Day. And it's also Visit Your Relatives Day. I already visited my relatives, so luckily I got that one covered. That was fun. Monday is... International Virtual Assistance Day and National Bike to Work Day. Aren't we doing Bike to Work Day today? Yeah, we're doing it today. Yeah, Carbonell is doing it today when we get into happenings. Yeah. Um, the anniversary of Charles Lindbergh's solar, solar, solo <laughs> flight. Um, and let's see, National Defense Transportation Day. Da 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 da. Yes, let's see. So coming up, we also have Tuesday is National Waitstaff Day. So your waiters, waitresses, your servers, it's a day to remember that they are human beings and not robots and that they deserve good pay and respect and all that. Wednesday is the UN International <clears throat> Day for Biological Diversity. There you go. Yes. And Thursday is International World Turtle Day. So, day to celebrate all the turtles and keep them safe and protected and alive. 
I skipped Tuesday. Tuesday is UN Work Day for Cultural Diversity for Dialogue and Development. <laughs> wow. That's a big one. So Yeah. We also missed some birthdays on Sunday. It's uh, Malcolm X, Pete Townsend, and me. <laughs> All on May 19th. Oh, we forgot the the famous people, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's do some happenings. Open mic nights. We have open mic night over at Guy House Interfaith Center, 913 South Illinois. Happens tonight at 7 p.m. Express yourself in a comfortable coffeehouse-style environment. Everyone's invited. And today is also Carbondale's, what, 11th annual Bike to Work Day, right? Yes, Bike to Work Day, 11th annual. And are they doing the same thing out at the pavilion? Uh, Yeah, they're. I believe they're doing... Let's see. I don't have the bike for work day information in front of me right now. Let's see. Well, the internet just froze. Uh, <laughs> Could we survive without the internet? I don't, I don't know. It's <laughs> just like <laughs> um you want to do a happening and I'll look up the bike to work. Okay, yes, the Carbondale Farmers Market. We were just talking about farmers markets and we're lucky to have several wow. here in Carbondale. Got one coming up on Saturday from eight AM to twelve PM at the West Town Mall parking lot in Carbondale. They are celebrating their 35th year. They've got vendors from Union, Jackson, Franklin, Randolph counties, all around southern Illinois. All sorts of goodies, fruits, vegetables, plants, herbs, cut flowers, and grass-fed and finished beef. But it's not the only farmer's market on Saturday now. Now we have the Carbondale Community Farmer's Market, which is on Saturday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Carbondale Community High School. It's another farmer's market. You can... Gather there and meet faces of agriculture and get the tastes of all that Southern Illinois has to offer. And if you have kids, I definitely recommend bringing them to the Carbondale Community Farmer's Market over by the high school. They have an actual section with chalk for the kids to do and bubbles, and they also had um, rabbits to pet. And the kids had phenomenal fun. <laughs> like I took my three, three-year-old nephew there um, to... Basically chase him around the farmer's market, but <laughs> it was definitely fun. Yeah. So um, the 11th annual Bike to Work Day, um, this is from the Carbondale. Here we go. If you go to the Town Square Pavilion, there will be special events for lunch. Trophies will be awarded to participants who travel the longest distance or the organization that has the most people ride their bikes to work that day. And so um, show up at the Town Square Pavilion. Usually they have some music and some food and awards are given out. And basically the whole idea is to call attention to the benefits of cycling and to increase safety awareness between bicyclists and uh, motorists. So Yes, celebration of bike culture and bike safety. So. It's a good time. All right, let's mention... This one, Forum on Freedom to Marry Act, coming up on Monday at 7 p.m. at the Church of the Good Shepherd, 515 South Orchard in Carbondale. They're going to be hosting a community forum with Equality Illinois on the pending Illinois Freedom to Marry Act. So once again, that's coming up at 7 p.m., Church of the Good Shepherd. Now, I'm sure you'll mention this next week again, <laughs> but May 25th, there's this famous guy named Treesong. He just had a book come out. I heard about that. And at the bookworm, they're going to have a book signing for change. That's the name of the book. <laughs> yes. I suppose, I suppose you could get change to sign the book, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> you change signed the book. Book and... signing for change. Saturday, May 25th at 1 p.m. at the Bookworm. And Tree Song's first official book signing of his new novel, Change. Yes. Go online, what, treesong.org slash change? Yep, that's the one. And check it out. It is a book about climate change, but also about... It's it's an intense book. Hmm. It's about um, love, and it's about what uh, I'm just making stuff up. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what's in it? Well, it's about a lot of different meanings of the word change. It is about love. It's about environment. It's about Southern Illinois. There are several chapters that feature Southern Illinois. It's a good time. All right. I will be gone for a month, and I will see if I can figure out a way to call in. I will be out of the country. We'll see how well the internet phone works. <laughs> yeah. The internet went out like four times while we were talking here. So Maybe your phone will be more reliable than the desktop computer. There we go. Those are the times we live in. See you again on the internet radio next week. Otherwise, yourcommunityspirit.org.